He's got niche distribution into a whole set of like protein powder stores. You've seen them. It's like, you know, they're just like literally walls of protein like vitamin powder. vitamin shops. Vitamin shops. I see yeah. them as I'm eating my McDonald's walking down the street. <laughs> yes. I love that for you. Drinking a jug of water from an old milk jug. <laughs> a milk carton of water. <laughs> Thank you. You rinse it out, John. It's not milky water. <laughs> Guys, this is this is terrible for the aerial lore. I'm just saying. <laughs> <laughs> no, this is like aerial mythology. And welcome to Another Bite, where we rewatch the most innovative and, you know, intriguing pitches from Shark Tank. I'm Jory, and I'm joined by Ariel. Hey, everyone. And John. How you doing, everybody? So, okay, look, at first glance, water bottles, bird feeders, athletic tape, you know, those might not seem to have a lot in common. But then I was like, aha! Today's products, they're actually all about protection. You know, water bottles help you stay hydrated, protect your body. Athletic tape, same thing, protects your joints, your ligaments, your, you know, body things. And then this bird feeder, protection against squirrels. So let's get protected and go nuts about these products. But before all that fun squirrely goodness, first we've got some ads. We got to get our nuts. (laughs) There's no secret formula for better service throughout the customer journey. But there is the all-new Service Hub from HubSpot. It makes it infinitely easier to scale customer support and increase retention. By bringing service and support together in one powerful platform, you can deliver the best experiences for your customers and your teams. Free up time for your reps to focus on complex issues with an AI-powered help desk. Proactively drive retention with customer health scores that help keep your business ahead and give your entire go-to-market team the data they need to operate as one unified, powerful front. Also, you can easily support, strengthen, and grow your customer base. Secrets out. HubSpot Service Hub is a game changer. Visit HubSpot.com service to do more for your customers today. So first in the tank, we have the cooler. And the cooler comes to us from Stan the White Rhino Efforting. And Stan is a power lifter, a bodybuilder, and he's very strong. And we get a presentation that just demonstrates this. He starts off by like lifting a 200 pounds dumbbell above his head. And then he goes on and he like flips this 800 pound tire. And while demonstrating his strength, he comes asking for $50,000 for a 15% stake in his company. That is a $333,000 valuation. And his product and what he's really trying to pitch to us is the cooler, which is the world's only cooler within a cooler. So you can think about this visually as like Russian nesting dolls of water bottles and uh, (laughs) shaker bottles. Essentially, it's like this double-walled insulated cooler that's meant to hold a gallon of ice water while also storing two shaker bottles of like whatever you want to snack on. So that could be your protein shake. That could be some other form of, you know, liquid nutrition. Kool-Aid in there. So it is a sort of like dynamic cooler water bottle hybrid. So thinking about Stan, our founder, and this product and his pitch to us, what are your initial thoughts? Well, can we just talk about this man a little bit more? My heavens. He's not just a strong man. He's the strongest man I think I've ever seen in my whole life. He was gigantic. I loved his like intro. Mm -hmm. I used to grow up watching strongman competitions all the time. Totally random. Mm. I love that hobby. Yeah. Like Like you do. 
Saturday morning television. Saturday morning. Well, as a child, <laughs> limited programming back in the 90s, you I don't guys. I know where you grew up in New England. We had candle pin bowling. You had strongman competitions, huh? <laughs> well, it was very impressive. But yeah, he walks out and literally, I think there's like one point and maybe it was like the camera angle in production. But when he was like actually handing out stuff, you could see that literally his bicep was like the same size as like someone's head. And I'm just like, oh. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Large man. Yeah. Wow. He is the reigning champion of the World Olympia weightlifting competition. He is extremely dedicated and committed to what he does. And so you got a couple things coming together, which make me think he's the type of person you should invest in. Number one is that incredible commitment to the things that he chooses to pursue. Second is I think he knows his target persona extremely deeply because of how much time he's spending at the gym. And number three, you know, you want to just categorize him as a meathead. You look at him and you're like, meathead. <laughs> no, he's like sold multiple multi-million dollar startups over the last couple of years and is invested in a whole bunch of things. Like He's an entrepreneur. I don't know. There's a lot more than meets the eye to this large man. Yeah, which is surprising. Yeah. He's a large brain too, which is 95% water. So he knows something about hydration. <laughs> Here's why I'm not sold on this. When you look at the packaging, like you kind of have to explain what it is. I think it's dangerous to assume that just because he is very well positioned within this community that like folks will automatically know what the benefits are or why they should pick this over their usual milk jug that they bring to the gym and drink like water out of. Did you pick that one up watching strongman competitions? Is it if you drink water from a milk, milk an old milk jug? <laughs> I don't know. You see all the types of people at Planet Fitness. The depths of Ariel. She is an onion. You brought up the number one blocker that he has right now, which mm -hmm. is like people don't understand what it is because it is a set of protein shakers inside of a cooler. And the whole thing, he's got it positioned as like a like functional feature benefit, which is like, look, you put the protein shakes inside the cooler and instead he should be doing a lifestyle brand. You know, his course has been charted by a cooler brand already called mm -hmm. Yeti. And Yeti did for like the outdoor industry, what he could be doing for like people who are into fitness or weightlifting or the gym community. And I think that he has a whole set of problems in the way that he's designed and packaged and named the product. Like to me, the name Cooler doesn't imply his target audience for it at all. And I think that's a problem. Yeah. Not a water bottle. That was my first thought. <laughs> I was like, what? Like, if you wanted to build a water bottle for the CrossFit community, it wouldn't look like an igloo cooler bottle. It would probably be like black and rubber and cool. And like, you could throw it against a wall and it wouldn't yeah, dent. Yeah, cool you abstract know? shape. I yeah. think the idea is great. I think he's great. I think if you just like change the design, you change the name, you think a little bit more about how to market it broader than just the functional benefit, I think he actually might be onto something. So basically you like the idea, but not the product itself. Just make it camo. He probably would carry more weight if he was selling like his own brand of fitness or lifestyle products or like the rhino way of living or something. That's right. You know? <laughs> I mean, it should be like the rhino cooler. He just needs marketing. But do you think that by rebranding that way that he'd actually be going too niche? Hmm. Something that the sharks bring up again and again is like they either see his targeting as way too specific, like it's only going to attract these people that are going to these expos, or he's got to go really broad and then potentially alienate the people going to the expos and then like be able to reach a greater market audience. Right now he's got niche distribution into a whole set of like protein powder stores. 
you've seen them. You know, they're just like literally walls of protein like vitamin powder. Vitamin shops. Vitamin shops. I yeah. see them as I'm eating my McDonald's walking down the street. <laughs> yes. I love that for you. Drinking a jug of water from an old milk <laughs> like jug. A coffee. milk carton of water. <laughs> Thank you. You rinse it out, John. It's not milky water. <laughs> Guys, this is this is terrible for the aerial lore. I'm just saying. <laughs> no, this is like aerial mythology. <laughs> It's fair to bring up that he's a little bit stuck in the middle right now because he's designed the product to look like it is for the mainstream, but the mainstream won't want or need the functional benefits necessarily, nor be willing to pay for, you know, the additional price point that his more premium product is at, which is why I think he actually kind of has to nail it with the niche. And then he has to just count on that niche growing. And if you ask me right now, is like a fitness lifestyle on the increase or decrease? I'd say it's on the increase. And like, I just think we kind of saw this with Yeti. People pay like hundreds of dollars for a Yeti cooler when they could buy a Coleman for a fifth of the price, just because it signals a certain lifestyle Mm -hmm. to them. And so I think like, ironically, if he wants to go mainstream, the best way to do it is to go way harder at the niche and design something that is an aspirational lifestyle for a much broader set of the wider market. I disagree. I, sorry, everyone's reactions right now. Listeners, I just got like two eyebrow raises at the same time. It was like perfectly timed. (laughs) There's nothing that screams this is for CrossFit or this is for like a certain type of athlete. Like it just feels general market to me. So I actually think if he wants to separate himself from this brand and his personal brand from his product, he needs to go more general. And I know it's more competitive, but going to niche is going to be problematic because he can't constantly be the face every single time. But I'll go a step further because it's like, is it doing well? Mm-hmm. Right? Like, end of question. Because like, they've got $125,000 in sales in 16 months. And like, granted, I have no pulse on the water bottle industry, but like, that's okay sales, right? The fact is that half of his sales are also coming from in online, right? So it's like, it's not just these trade shows and these expositions that are like getting him sales. It's also online. So it's like, he has to be really careful with his marketing because it's like he could niche himself out of business. Yeah. I hear your point on trying to go more general, but if he goes more general, like I don't think he'll actually win. I'm not sure it's like a compelling product if he goes more general. Like then he's just literally building an igloo cooler with a cup. I mean, is his goal to win arguably if he's had multiple businesses that he's like sold back? Maybe he just wants the opportunity just to get the innovation and like the product out there, you know? Maybe. He's stuck in the middle of like general and niche. How do you not do that? How do you not get stuck in the middle of kind of this like gray space where this product's at, where it's like, he's not quite niche enough to be like owning the powerlifting community, but he's not general enough that like, it's really speaking to the general public. How do you market a product that kind of straddles that line? My sense is that fundamentally, this is not a general market product. This is actually a product designed for a very specific community of people. The only way this is going to become a general market product is if a broader set of people think that the design of it is cool enough and they associate enough with that lifestyle that they want to pay a premium to buy that water bottle to lug it around with them. That makes sense. While certain sharks were kind of like failing to see the value, ultimately Damon actually offered a deal of $50,000 for 33% of the company and just a major moment there. Which was fair. It was fair considering the the original ask. It is like a little over double what he was originally asking, but like still the same amount of money. It was fair. Mm -hmm. And for Damon to get a third of a company for $50,000 that's tied to someone who's the World Olympiad champion who actually has some insight about an unserved need in the market, like that's a deal worth doing. And has a great track record. And a great track record. Yeah. 
Well, ultimately, a deal was made, but only after the rhino asked his muscles if they (laughs) gave their permission to accept the deal. But a bit of a company update. So the product sold out after airing on the tank, and it was that moment that it started to go a little downhill. So customers started reporting production issues and that this cooler was in fact very leaky. (sighs) So now mind you, this was a pitch from back in 2017, but as of June, 2021, the company is out of business. It's almost like if they went more general with their approach and focused on fixing the product itself, maybe. Or if they had just gone more niche, Ariel, and no, focused John, on building the through. best product cut instead through. of some leaky, crappy general market product. Well, I mean, you also should test with your target audience, too, and actually like uh, test out the functionality of your product before you sell it to people. <laughs> I completely disagree. <laughs> so as much as I want to give you the win on this, Ariel... John does get a last laugh because <laughs> the rhino pivoted. Yes, and rhino! if you go <laughs> if you go rhino. to the company website, mm-hmm. it redirects you to the founder's website where he is very much doubling down on creating a fitness brand and like lifestyle brands. So he's currently focused on selling nutrition programs, ebooks, and even has a merch store. So the rhino got the last laugh. Well, he built on his personal brand. Which is exactly you know. so you both won. <laughs> Ariel won, John won. Amazing. So next in the tank, we have Squirrel Boss. And I will say this is probably one of the strangest products we will cover and have covered. So Squirrel Boss comes to us from Michael, and he calls himself Mike D. So henceforth will be known as Mike D. And Mike D is asking for $130,000 for a 40% stake in his company. Now, that is a $325,000 valuation. Now, his product is Squirrel Boss. It is a squirrel-proof bird feeder, and it's the world's first interactive bird feeder. Now, you might say, Jory, what does that mean? What do you mean interactive? Well, this bird feeder looks like one of those typical long bird feeders that you would buy, you know, at your hardware store. It's a tube of seed. It's a tube of seed. Mm -hmm. It is wrapped in this very interesting metal (laughs) mesh. And the interactive part comes when if you see a squirrel on your feeder, you have this little remote control that delivers a, quote, safe, safe static shock of correction to the beast. So basically during the demonstration, we see that, yeah, it's like a shock collar for squirrels trying to get into your bird food. And that is the product. That is Squirrel Boss. So you are a boss of those squirrels. And, you know, each of the sharks, because at first you're like, hmm, a static shock. That's not so bad. But each of the sharks actually, except Kevin, of course, grabs the bird feeder and takes turns getting zapped. And it's profound enough that each of the sharks is like, whoa, that's that's painful. So anyway, thinking about Squirrel Boss, thinking about our pitch and our product, initial thoughts? Maybe this is more of a homeowner pain point than someone who okay. lives in an apartment complex. So I'm actually curious to know both of your guys' thoughts. How pesky are the squirrels around your neighborhood? Yeah. Very pesky. Extremely. The, so it's a very common the problem. The pest level is high. Yes. Yeah. Would you guys actually consider buying this? 
So here's the thing. I was bought into this product. I hate squirrels. So I live in South Carolina now, but I used to live in Boston. And I used to live in a Boston apartment, but I had a full view of my outside. So I had a bird feeder. And I used to get pounds and pounds of bird food. I had a legion of chickadees that basically were trained when they saw me. They knew that I was feeding them. So anyway. I love this. Imagine that. Pigeon lady. I was a chickadee lady. Not pigeon lady. Like Snow White. You're like bringing all the birds. Sure. So... I used to get so angry because I had these two gray squirrels that would go and just eat everything. And they eat, they eat and eat mm-hmm. and eat. And so it actually is a problem if you use these bird feeders to like enjoy the wonderful bird song. So I could sort of see it. John, initial thoughts? I love it. I think there <laughs> needs to be more of this in the market. I got squirrel problems. I got bunny problems. And I would appreciate some, mm-hmm. I mean, like, you know what my only option is right now? I got to buy coyote urine on the internet. What? And like- spray it around my backyard. Is that your only option? That's Wait, the only hold option. On. We're going to reel that back. That's not your only option. That's the only You're option. You're not like going to go for like peppermint or things like that. You're like straight to coyote urine. Straight to coyote. I've tried the peppermint. I tried the red pepper. Mm-hmm. I'm into this product because it's not often in a pitch that a founder convinces the sharks to all do something like really silly and make fools of themselves. But all shocking themselves was an all-time great Shark Tank moment. Mm-hmm. But this guy's got a problem. I want to invest in this company, Mm -hmm. but he too is stuck in the middle. The shock. He's qualifying all of his statements and saying, well, like, oh, it doesn't hurt the squirrels that much. (gasps) And like squirrels need to eat too. And I'm okay with squirrels eating like all these things. No, dude, if you want to sell a lot of squirrel bosses, you got to be the enemy of the squirrels. You got to hate the squirrels. And I think he should have gone much harder at squirrel hating. You know what bug zappers don't do? Say the moths are probably okay. Jory. She's a killer. (laughs) Here's my thing. This is 100% in my mind, a great gag gift. I don't see this Mm -hmm. as like a more like evergreen product that you're going to invest in and actually see meaningful scale just for a few reasons. I think, you know, hurting the squirrels like that, like you never know. It's an ethical issue. (laughs) I think he's designed a product to hurt squirrels. And instead of saying that he's actually secretly a friend of the squirrels because it doesn't result in lethal force against the squirrels, which is what he tried to say, he should have been like, Heck yeah, I'm the enemy of the squirrels. I'm the boss the squirrels don't want to see. And he should have leaned super hard because I think there's a whole segment of society, a lot like Jory, that really hates squirrels. squirrels. Yeah. And if he just got out of being stuck in the middle and started marketing super hard to the squirrel haters, I bet he would sell a ton of squirrel bosses. Couple of things. When we actually start to get into the business, he went from being super specific about how his product works to the most vague founder. And that's where it broke down for me because suddenly he's like, okay, so we've sold a bunch of them, right? We've sold year to date about $200,000. Okay. That's pretty Mm -hmm. successful. But then he hits us with this like super loaded statement. That's like, yeah, I need the shark's help because I spent $60,000 in traditional marketing. And you know what? It just didn't work. And then that's all the context that we get for this business model. And I was like, oh no, something's happening on the back end. Because like, first of all, what does traditional marketing even mean? And how are you sinking that much money into it and not getting any success and then going into no detail? Like, I don't know. That was a little sketchy to me. I mean, traditional marketing, I mean, I'm sure he didn't get like a billboard. (laughs) That's like a lot of money, (laughs) way more than (laughs) $60,000. So like he probably leaned in, if I had to guess more into like mailers, like direct. Remember when you used to get those Bed Bath & Beyond coupons in the mail? Oh yeah. 
Yeah. Or like classified ads, like basically marketing before digital marketing, essentially. And that's the vibe that I got from him. I do wish they clicked more deeper into that of like what actually worked or like where did you actually leverage that spend? Because again, nothing wrong with not having a marketing background and admitting it, but you know, you got to elaborate a little more. (laughs) Yeah. To to me though, that was a reason to invest. So basically you're telling me that it's wide open to basically market and sell this product. And I think with some basic digital marketing, it would be a total slam dunk. Mm -hmm. And he just probably had the wrong marketing mix to your point, Ariel. But something about him, it just started to not sit right. Just looking at his packaging, right? (laughs) That's where I lost it. Part of his packaging says like, as seen on TV, (laughs) which is usually like indicative of like running infomercials and stuff, right? So it's like, okay, Lori clicks on that and is like, okay, like, what do you mean? Like as seen on TV, unpack that with me. And he's like, well, technically a news camera came to my house. And so it was technically on TV. That is not what that means. There's just something here that just doesn't sit right on top of like, he went from super jokey to suddenly I'm not leaving the room without a deal. And it's like, where did that come from? I don't know. I think this is a problem a lot of people have. You're right, Ariel. Maybe it's a gag gift. Maybe this is just something lots of people are going to buy. In every relationship in the suburbs, there is one of the two people who is obsessed with eradicating the squirrels from their yard. I think with some digital marketing, with some clever idea-based marketing, tapping into that irrational anger everybody feels about the squirrels in their life, I think they could sell a crap ton of these And they could really just sell millions of dollars of squirrel bosses. And so I would invest and I don't think it would be a ton of work, honestly, to sell a ton of them. I have two product improvements and then I would invest. One, if you had a way to detect the scale to ensure that you're actually shocking squirrels of like a certain density instead of birds. Because that's like the one thing is you have to sit and watch and then click Mm -hmm. the remotes. But if there was some kind of sensor there based off of weight or like a heat map or something, like the technology piece is missing. Okay. The second thing is, let's say, yeah, you're living in, you know, suburbia, America. What happens when you have kids that are like, I want to play around with this. I want to touch this. Like I want to, kids always find a way to not play with the things that they want to play with and play with the things that they shouldn't. So how do you make a household product that doesn't risk, you know, accidentally electrocuting someone you really care about. I mean, Pavlov works for kids oh too, right? Like it would take one shock and they'd never, they never touch, touch it again. There it is. <laughs> the morbidness. <laughs> There's the morbidity. Yep. Well, the sharks ultimately had some issues with this product. They were like, you know, shocking squirrels is sadistic. That came from Lori. Most of the sharks didn't really have an interest in going into the squirrel or like pest control business. Mm. So unfortunately, Squirrel Boss, despite being such an iconic product, did walk away with no deal with the sharks. Okay, so this is a product from 2013. Do you think it's still a product? Yes. I don't feel like if he didn't get investment and he didn't get some help, I'm not sure that he made it because this is from a while ago. He would have to really have turned around the go-to-market for it and his approach for selling it. So it is a product that still exists in somewhat of a unfortunate state. So the reviews are in. And while Squirrel Boss does exist still as a company, it's giving a solid three out of five. So customers report that it has major functionality issues, such as the battery, Uh the item arriving and not working at all, or some squirrels being so smart that they actually just were able to, in some cases, outsmart this product. The product was actually so bad that it was pulled off of Amazon due to bad reviews. That being said, it does exist as a company still. So if you are so angry at these squirrels, John, you can still purchase one directly from the website. So yep, 
still exists as a product, but not necessarily a highly reviewed one. <laughs> Yikes. Create Like the Greats, hosted by Ross Simmons, is brought to you by the HubSpot Podcast Network, the audio destination for business professionals. Each episode hosts an in-depth analysis of some of the greatest creations and creators of all time, along with deep dive conversations on the creative process that went into building companies and brands. If you like learning about history or learning about the creative process, you'll like this podcast. Listen to Create Like the Greats wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, so last in the tank, we have Hampton Adams. And Hampton Adams comes to us from Seneca Hampton, and he is asking for $500,000 for a 10% stake in his business, which is a $5 million valuation. Now, when I say the word Hampton Adams, what kind of product does that bring to mind for you two? The hotel industry? Mm. I just go straight to like Hampton. Because the Hampton Inn? Yeah, yeah. Hampton Inn. Mm. I'm feeling like a preppy clothing line. Mm, I could see that very posh. Or like a member's club somewhere, Ooh. something like that. Yeah, like luxury travel. Yeah. Well, you're both wrong. Hampton Adams is a line of sports medicine products, specifically sports tape products. Tape. And, you know, every athlete uses athletic tape, but not every athletic tape can hold 45 pounds and rip like butter. So essentially, Seneca has listened to the athletes, trainers, and physical therapists of the world to develop the world's most functional sports tape. Thinking about our sports tape product, our business, and our pitch, initial thoughts of this. Okay. I'm pretty worried. I'm pretty worried about Hampton Adams as a business. He's done incredibly well. He's done like 12 million in sales. The problem is he's got no money. Mm. He's got two problems. He's having to pay a lot of money to acquire customers. It's actually, <laughs> it's proving pretty expensive for him. And I bet he's already selling his tape at a high price point versus normal athletic tape. Mm -hmm. And number two is he's growing such that like any money that he makes is just plowing into inventory, which is just leaving like no actual profit. So as an investment, it's just feeling like not a particularly good investment uh, for me. And for those reasons, I'm out. I think this is a great case sample of someone who clearly knows his audience, has clearly tested the product beforehand. I could see this doing really well within the business of fitness and less of a consumer-oriented product. But again, I'm not the target audience, so... So two things to unpack there. Let's start with John's point. So one thing that you mentioned is it's like essentially not making any money. And we got some important figures here, and I'm hoping that you can help make those numbers make sense, right? So he's making so much money. Well, theoretically. So lifetime sales, $12.2 million. This year, going to end the year with $6.2 million, right, by the end of the year. But they mentioned this thing, and I think we've talked about it before, but it's like EBITDA, and it's like 20% profit when it comes to EBITDA. Like, what does that mean, and why is that bad? <laughs> okay. Earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation, and amortization is what EBITDA stands for. And it is a common mm -hmm. way to evaluate the profitability of a business. Okay. The challenge is, on your income statement, you basically make revenue, you subtract expenses, and after that is what you get is basically what's called EBITDA. And it's a very pure play view of the profit that a business makes. Mm -hmm. Because after EBITDA, you take out all these things like taxes, uh, the amortization of capital expenditures that you've made, debt, mm -hmm. like things like that. 
you don't want when you're looking at the profitability of a business to let things like all the investments that they've made and the fact that they have a bunch of, you know, money sitting in investments influence how profitable a business is. You want to get a very pure play view of just straight up how much revenue versus how much expenses a business has. And so that's what EBITDA is. And the challenge is his EBITDA is only like a 20% margin. And so basically what it's saying is he's made $12.2 million in revenue but only 20% of that has been left over for profit. And when you actually take out his taxes, his interests, his depreciation and all that stuff, it probably leaves even less, Oof. which means that the money available to a shareholder in the business is almost nothing. Mark asked very quickly, what's your EBITDA? The one thing I just do want to note for EBITDA is when you look at accounting principles, typically general best practices are like reporting out on like gap metrics. So when you look at EBITDA or like your free cash flow, these metrics are really great for understanding the potential profitability of a company like John, as you mentioned. But I think for a lot of businesses that are starting out, that's like the best way to look at it. But as you scale more and more, there's a lot more things you want to factor in besides just EBITDA over time. Yeah, it's true, though. Like if you look at really big companies, Ariel, mm -hmm. you know, big companies have a lot of cash in their balance sheet. and They invest all of that into money market accounts, stocks, index funds, a whole bunch of things like that. Mm -hmm. And you don't want to, as an investor, I think evaluate whether a company is good at investing its balance sheet in the stock market. You want to invest in a company based on the pure fundamentals of its business. But it's true. There are a lot of people who are like, you can't look at EBITDA. Like, you know, they kind of push against it because there's more to it. But I don't know. I kind of like the pure play view of it. It's a supplementary metric. I think it is the purest way to look at the actual unit economics of a business, which is the thing that actually, if you're investing in a company, you should care about. I'm pro EBITDA. So that's sort of like the business from the financial angle. But then you also brought up in terms of like being sort of not the target segment, Ariel, is this idea of packaging and branding. And can you help me unpack what may be going right or what might be going wrong for our founder and Hampton Adams as a whole? I'm not 100% obsessed with the name. Mm -hmm. It's not very clear what the product is. It doesn't really evoke any emotion, doesn't really kind of like tie into fitness or have like that association within that market. You know, the actual packaging itself was really interesting. I liked kind of the shoebox of the six different tapes that they had, but I don't know. I feel like there could have been more to make it look more organized instead of, hey, we just threw six things of tape in, I'd recommend reevaluating potentially what the name could be. So it's more, you know, easy to remember. Like, I think you need something a little bit more snappy and digestible when you are going to market. I would imagine that true athletes use a lot of tape, but most of it's mm -hmm. probably provided to them by their organizations. And so I'd imagine that a big segment of the market that he's focused on is people who aspire to be like real athletes. And for them, you want to tap into their aspirations. You don't want to tap into their preppiness. You want to tap into the fact that they want to perform better, lift more, push harder, run faster, whatever it is. And I think that's one of the things that's kind of missing in the branding and the name. I'm curious now, do you think this is a product that should be oriented direct to consumer? I just feel like this could be a bigger play within the fitness space. Maybe there's some angle to come in there. I bet it's a lot to get a professional athlete to change their tape brand. I bet as a brand, it's pretty sticky, actually. <laughs> that one was pretty good. Sticky. That one was great. Yeah. <laughs> Despite these nuances of branding and finance, it was interesting because we also got this conversation from the sharks. They were starting to dig into the like the financial and cash flow issues. And 
Seneca was asked, have you been approached to be acquired yet? And almost immediately, Rob was like, you should sell it. The best time to sell is when you don't think you need to sell. So when is the right time to sell a company, in your opinion? I think it's when you have a proven track record of consistent sales Mm -hmm. and being able to say confidently, yeah, I have a good proof of concept and the receipts basically to follow up to prove that. From the investor perspective, I would imagine that they would be focusing more on what is the upside opportunity? Is this an actual area that we really think is going to grow and scale over time? I wonder how investors typically evaluate that because it's so hard from these pitches. The right time to sell is completely dependent on what outcome you want as a founder. Like for Seneca, he's made $12 million in revenue. He's made almost no money on that, no profit which kind of stinks for him. Like if he could sell this to some sports brand for $20 million, like that's life-changing money for Seneca. Absolutely. And with that life-changing money, he could actually go and launch a whole bunch of other brands Mm. and bootstrap them and own more equity in the companies that he bootstraps. And so if he already had life-changing money and he was on to a new business, then he might say like, you know what? I want a moonshot here and I kind of don't care if it crashes and burns and I don't make a lot here. That doesn't matter to me. And so I think like, number one, just founder motivations matter a ton. The second thing though, is just like what you were talking about, Ariel, is assessing the market, which is like, I don't know how big the tape market is. If the tape market's a $30 million market every year and he's, you know, making 10 or $12 million in revenue, like he should sell if he can, because he's not going to be able to get more market share over time. Like, here's what I can guarantee for him. From here, his customer acquisition cost is only going to go up. His competition is only going to go up, which means it's going to get more expensive and it's going to get more difficult. And if he's already not making any profit, it's going to be really tough to continue to fund his growth from here. He's found lightning in a bottle. He's got 10 to $12 million of tape sold. If somebody wants to buy him for 15 or 20 or $30 million, that feels like a slam dunk for him. It seems that most of our sharks found that his best option would be honestly to sell it. That's how he'd get like the biggest bang for his buck. Kevin did offer a deal that had this dollar royalty on it, but Rob came out and was like, I forbid you from taking that deal. (laughs) And then Mark was like, yeah, it's a loan shark deal. Don't do it. We love when Rob gets sassy. That's when you know he's passionate. You can only do a royalty if you have a really high net margin. If you don't have a high net margin, you can't do a royalty deal because you actually can't afford it. And that's what Rob was concerned about. Yeah, that royalty will be pulled away from him you know, funding the production of more tape Mm. and funding marketing and advertising activities to drive more buyers of tape. It will literally just go right to the investor. And that's just not a good situation. And it seems like the sharks, much like you, Ariel, like really loved the entrepreneur, but were like, honestly, just sell. So the founder of Hampton Adams didn't get a Shark Tank deal. So he didn't take Kevin's sort of loan shark deal. Mm. But since airing, the founder has kept the company. Okay, It's expanded to elastic wrap bandages, finger tapes, rubber-free K-tape, and more. (laughs) So their lifetime sales have surpassed 15 million. Unclear how much of that has been pocketed, but still a company. So still clearly doing something right. I'm not surprised. I really like the founder. That's something that the Sharks mentioned over and over again. Barbara started crying because she was like, I really associate with your story. It was the founder that had sort of come from a really humble beginning and really worked at this. And like the company for all, it's not like taking in that much profit. It's selling product. Mm -hmm. So still around and still able to buy that product. But as always, it is time to choose our golden bite of our many products. We've got the cooler, we've got Squirrel Boss, and we've got Hampton Adams. So who do you pick? 
for me, my golden bite goes to Hampton Adams. I think John brought up some really good points around understanding like margin and looking at revenue. But I just think this entrepreneur just has so much potential and he just has this like je ne sais quoi. Ooh. And what about you, John? I'm going with Cooler, baby. Strongest man, strongest idea. But like, why? Why? Yeah. I think the gym category is growing. I think that the weightlifting category is growing. Mm -hmm. I think those people spend a lot of money on crap and gear. I think they love gear. Okay. What about you, Jory? Yeah. So I think for me, I have to also go with Hampton Adams, but just because I did find the entrepreneur like so relatable Mm -hmm. and charismatic and I just want the best for, for him and the company. And honestly, I do hope he sells it at like a very profitable margin and makes a bunch of money just because I do see it as like potentially a founder that could start a couple different businesses. And we get a couple different of those on Shark Tank that come again and again with new ideas. Mm-hmm. And he seems very like think tank to me. Yeah. Could create some like really interesting innovations. So for the entrepreneur, Hampton Adams gets my golden bite. Today's episode was written and produced by the magnanimous Matthew Brown. Additional support comes from Melanie Romero and editing from Robert Hartwig. Have you subscribed to the show yet? You know, like those subscription boxes for hand soaps or questionable clothing items. You know, like the one that John used to run. I'm kidding, John. I don't mean it. (laughs) You can subscribe to this show wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks for listening. I'm Jory, and see you next week in the tank for another bite.